Wild Precious Life is brought to you in part by Booksmith, an independent bookstore and mainstay of San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury district since 1976. Booksmith offers signed copies by local authors and ships worldwide. Shop online at booksmith.com. And we're brought to you by Story Studio Chicago, a writing center located in Chicago and online, which helps writers hone their craft, express their creativity, and tell their stories. Find classes and workshops and connect with other writers at storystudiochicago.org. So it's my 30th high school reunion this week. Yeah, 30 years. I've found myself in the utterly irrational situation of believing I should probably lose 30 pounds before I go to it. I've considered dyeing my hair so nobody can see the gray. And the other day, I asked my optometrist which progressive lenses would make me look the most like a 29-year-old. He just laughed. I don't think of myself as a vain person, but I feel a mild sense of panic about seeing these folks again, as though my outward appearance is some sort of measuring stick for my inward one. As though if I wear the right outfit or shoes or chunky necklace, these will somehow convince the world or myself that I am put together and have everything all figured out. Which is, of course, bananas. The illusion of put-togetherness is something I cast off after high school. I don't want that back. Instead, I want authenticity and vulnerability and emotional honesty. And I'm probably not going to maximize any of those things if I only eat quinoa and dye my hair purple by Friday. So I'm going anyway. A couple of pounds heavier, I'm going. A few forehead wrinkles older, I'm going. Not to try to bamboozle anyone into thinking I have everything figured out, but just to show them that I'm out here, still trying, doing my best, like everybody else, and that we are still on this journey together. Maybe that's why I so thoroughly enjoyed the most recent book by today's guest, The women in Kirsten Chen's novel, Counterfeit, are also consumed with that disconnect between outward and inward appearances. We're going to dig into that today, but first, let me tell you about Kirsten. Kirsten Chen is the award-winning, best-selling author of three novels. Her latest, Counterfeit, has been recommended by Entertainment Weekly, Vogue, Time, Oprah Daily, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmopolitan, good housekeeping and was recently chosen by Reese Witherspoon's book club. Television rights have been optioned by Sony Pictures. Kirsten's previous two novels are Bury What We Cannot Take and Soy Sauce for Beginners. Born and raised in Singapore, Kirsten now lives in San Francisco and teaches creative writing at the University of San Francisco and at Ashland University's low residency MFA program. Kirsten Chen, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much for having me. I am so delighted that you're here. This time of year, folks are always asking me about, like, beachy book club reads. And I usually get a little pissy and um, suggest something like, well, have you tried Dr. Zhivago? Because, I mean, who says we can't be, like, both thoughtful and entertained in the summertime? But I think what people are 
meaning with this request is they're like, what is a book I can escape into? And your most recent novel, Counterfeit, really, it just ticks all the boxes. It's escapist, it's thrilling, and it's also full of these big ideas that we can chew on. It's just like the full package. I'm just really excited to chat with you about it today. Oh, thank you so much for describing it in that way. That is how I think of it as well. <laughs> I think of it as fun and, and escapist. Um, but I also, you know, um, when I set out to write this book, there were some big ideas that I was really looking to explore. And th- that's really the heart of the book for me. So it it is so gratifying to hear you say that. Yeah, no, I think it's completely all there. But before we dive in, um, I have had the great good fortune to meet you and work with you because of your work with the Ashland MFA. But not everybody who's listening is going to know um, about the formidable and wonderful Kirsten Chen. So Let's just have you open with, you know, our usual question, which is, will you please tell us your story? Yeah, sure. I'm born and raised in Singapore. I moved to the U.S. at the age of 15 to attend boarding school. Um, When I was an undergraduate in college, I walked into my first creative writing class completely by accident, thinking that it was a literature class. (laughs) Um, on how to read short stories as opposed to how to write short stories. The interesting thing about that class, I went went to Stanford um, in the late 90s where um, there there were very, very few humanities majors. There are very few humanities majors. At that time, it was the beginning of the tech boom, and so nobody majored in humanities. And so I was completely shocked to walk into this humanities class that was full to the brim with students. And so even though I figured out very quickly that this was a creative writing class, not a literature class, I decided I would just stay and figure out what was going on because I had never seen a class this crowded before. And then I found out that there was a wait list for this class and people had like, you know, like these were, people were really serious about taking, it was a very, very popular class. And that there was absolutely no way that I would get in until the professor said, well, who wants to submit the first story? And nobody raised their hand. And I said, well, you know, if I turn in the first story, will you will you let me take the class? And he was like, yeah, sure. And so, you know, I wrote my first story that week, um, ended up loving it. Um, so a kind of kind of, you know, serend- I, I feel like writing careers have a lot of serendipity in it. And that was kind of my first uh, little piece of good fortune where, um, you know, a little bit of magic appeared out of nowhere and I was able to kind of seize that chance. And so that, I guess, is the beginning of my writing career. Oh my gosh. Do you remember what that story was about? Oh, I do, of course, because it was completely autobiographical. You know, like I think a lot of us are, you know, (laughs) when a lot of fiction writers start out and you almost feel like you're cheating, even though now I actually give a craft class on why writers should never feel feel guilty about using their autobiographies. But yeah, it was completely autobiographical. I think it was about me and my ex-boyfriend, but like as if we were 10 years ahead and working, you know? <laughs> I, was, I love I it already. It was, I thought it had some, <laughs> obviously it was terrible, but I thought it had some, some um, authenticity of emotion maybe. Oh my gosh. That is really excellent because I feel like What I would immediately do is I would look around at everybody in the class and without even ever having heard them, I'd know they were all better writers than me and I wasn't talented and then I probably would just drop the class and cry. So I'm so proud of you for not doing any of those things. 
But I think it was because I had no expectations. Like, I didn't think of myself as a writer. I was a comparative literature major. I had never taken a creative writing class. I'd probably never written creatively. You know, I'd written term papers. I'd written my college essays. And I think I just had no expectations. And I, and I'm, and I know we all kind of invent through lines after the fact, but I, I, I do feel like that particular aspect has served me well in my writing life because I can think of numerous times that I, you know, just not putting that kind of pressure on myself has really freed me to do a lot of things. That's really good advice, actually. So you said you grew up in Singapore and went away to boarding school. I feel like in the States, we have a completely, like, I feel like we know on average, like one and a half or two things about Singapore, and that's on us. So like we know like there are littering laws and we shouldn't throw yes. cigarettes out the window because it'll be like a $300 fine. And then we've read or watched Crazy Rich Asians. And I will be the first to admit that that is surely not enough. So what can you tell us about your upbringing in Singapore? What else is magical about it? Yeah, I mean, I think I had a pretty idyllic childhood. Singapore is uh, obviously a large, cosmopolitan, sophisticated city, but extremely safe. I mean, when I was 12, 13, 11, you know, I was off, you know, walking to school, taking the public bus to school. Um, and so it was really idyllic in that way. I think at the time that I was growing up, the humanities were not something that was considered a serious topic. I think that's pretty common in um, a lot of Asian, East Asian countries. I think it's changed a little bit. But um, so, you know, my whole life, it was really drum, you know, the definition of intelligence was, were you good at math and science? Um, and writing, um, acting, music, that was kind of like the side stuff that once you were good in math and science, then yes, it was great to have all that other stuff, but it was never taken a given priority. Um, I was very lucky, however, because my mother is a professional musician and she, um, yes, yeah, so she's an organist and she's a professor of music. And so even though I also had to be good at math and science, there's no getting around that. <laughs> I did know in, I think in my heart of hearts that another path was possible. Do you remember what it was like? You said you came to America at 15 to go to boarding school. Was that thrilling? Was it terrifying? Was it the realization of all your parents' dreams, but you just wanted to go home? Or were it like, what was that like? It, yeah, it was weird. I mean, it was my choice, actually. So my brother went before me. And so he kind of led the way. And my parents were like, do you want to go as well? Because he was doing really well in boarding school. And I think my parents had a sense, a sense of where my interests lay and that I, they were not necessarily going to be, you know, so if I wanted to be a humanities major, if I wanted to write and read deeply, you know, it wasn't going to be served in Singapore. And so they had, you know, it, I, I kind of think of it as a really selfless act on their part for giving me that option. Um, once I got there, I would say it was probably a combination of mystifying, more mystifying than terrifying. Um, but I actually think that that ignorance served me well. Boarding school is a weird place. Um, it's, you know, social hierarchies. There's a lot of wealth. There's obviously drugs and alcohol because it's teenagers, uh, uh, you know, relatively unsupervised. And I think that I was ignorant enough of the kind of social structures that I actually... It, it actually made me very safe. It's very easy to kind of get swept away by certain things. And because I didn't know enough about it, I think it actually helped me um, 
it, it actually helped me. And then, you know, my education, the education was stellar. It was an excellent, an excellent time in hindsight, but it's not for every teenager. <laughs> I always wanted to go to boarding school. I have this like, <laughs> I always read all the boarding school novels, but I went to like, you know, K through 12 public high school. So although a lot of those things you described were were available to us. Right. Yeah. It's part of every high school. I mean, less so in Singapore. So that maybe is the maybe is the difference. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So your recent book, you've described your most recent novel, Counterfeit, as quote, the story of two Asian American women who band together to grow a counterfeit handbag scheme into a global enterprise shattering the model minority myth along the way. It is fantastic. I got a sneak preview and it's just, it's a thrilling read. Um, I guess first half, what interested you in counterfeit handbags? <laughs> it's a great question, Anne-Marie. Um, you know, the idea for this book, quite honestly, started as a joke. Um, I was working on my last novel, Bury What We Cannot Take, which is... Um, a kind of weighty historical novel um, set in 1950s Southern China, a very, very different book as you, as you're, you know, you could probably already tell from that description, um, but it was a book that required an incredible amount of research. Um, and I remember I was at the end of a particularly grueling day of research and I turned to my partner and I said, uh, listen, the next book that I write is going to have to require zero research. And so it's going to have to be about a topic that I already know about. And the only one I can think of is designer handbags. I happen to be an armchair expert on <laughs> designer Ooh. handbags. I'm a lover of fashion. I'm a lover of handbags in particular. Um, but so, you know, I said that really just kind of blithely. Um, and then a couple of weeks later, I came across an article in the Washington Post about a real life con artist who had come up with this perfect handbag scheme. And it was so good that I was like, that belongs in a novel. And that's when I thought, okay, maybe I could write a book about counterfeit handbags, um, which of course, you know, ended up requiring a lot of research. I was going to say, <laughs> I feel like either you knew a whole lot about handbags yes. or you ended up having to research. Yes, yes, yes. So <laughs> once I realized that the book was actually about counterfeit handbags and not luxury handbags, which I don't even know what that novel would be if it was just about it. <laughs> but, you know, when I figured out it was about counterfeit handbags, it required a whole lot of research. And I ended up getting a research grant that let me go to southern China. Um, I visited the fake handbag markets. I toured a factory. I talked to lawyers who specialize in IP protections. I mean, I, I did a lot of research. Um, but, you know, it was as research often is, the more you dig into a subject, the more interesting it becomes. Um, and so, yeah, I have all this knowledge now that <laughs> that I'm wow. glad, you know, found uh, found its way into the book. OK, so I, I'm fascinated by this. So much to my children's chagrin, I have taken to wearing a fanny pack everywhere and not like a bedazzled fanny pack, just like this old beat up black fanny pack. Like I'm at an amusement park, but like perpetually. So I am possibly the least stylish person either of us knows. So help me out. What is the allure of an expensive bag? Is it easier to find my chapstick in there? <laughs> there is no, um, I would say there's probably no kind of utilitarian <laughs> <laughs> advantage to a designer handbag. Not firstly, fanny packs are making a comeback. Have made a comeback. Packs so. are back. I keep telling yeah. my kids that. I'm on yeah. the cutting edge of that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is I don't think there is any utilitarian value whatsoever. But I think for me too, fashion in general, not just handbags, is a form of play. Um 
that I, and, and so I think, you know, if it ever, st- I, I, I do try to remember that, you know, if it ever stops being fun and it feels like something you have to do, that that's a sign, you know, okay, you've gone too far. And so for me, I think of it as play. I think of it as a, a expression, a creative expression. Um, but yeah, no, there is really no reason to buy a designer handbag, just, just to be clear. You introduce us to this amazing world of one-to-one replicas. I was fascinated by this. I could... I could tell that you had researched this. I never thought about. I get if if you buy a fancy purse that's leather and I return it in plastic. I get that that's not the same thing. <laughs> but if you buy a fancy purse and the one you return is identical, made from the same leather, has the same clasp, has made in Italy on the handle, it's not the exact one you you bought, but it is. It's the same. And so right. they're returning these handbags and, of course, sen- selling the others on the side. I was um, struck by not being terribly bothered that they were returning something that looked identical to the thing, to the thing that someone else was going to buy. I was fascinated by the fact that I was on board with this supposed crime. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself um, convinced or were you the whole time judging them? Like, like, did, do you have to believe yeah. in their scheme? Yeah, I mean, I think that is one of the kind of larger questions that the book is asking is what makes uh, what makes something real? What gives something its value? What is the difference? Um, if it's really, if the only difference is a serial number that's untrackable inside a bag, is that really, is that really a value? Was that worth 10 times the value? Who's cheating whom? Um, yeah, so these are questions that I, I'm really interested in. Um, did I ever feel uh, that I was on board with the crime? <laughs> Personal, I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, no, I would never commit that crime, you know. <laughs> but I do think the fact that the crime appears so benign really lent itself to exploring the questions that I was trying to ask. Like, who's being taken advantage of? Um, what does it mean to be a model minority in a country where that tells you you should be grateful for this status? What does it mean to want more than that? Um, so in some ways, the counterfeit handbag scheme is a metaphor for, all, for, for the circumstances that these women live in. You know, they were dealt a particular lot in life. And within that, within those constraints, um, how are they going to pursue their version of the American dream? I will also add that I think um, the nature of the crime itself allowed me to um, explore humor and, uh, you know, to make this a, a kind of funny, exurbic book in a way that uh, no other crime would have let me in. So that I really uh, appreciate. I think the crime served the story in that way, way as well. The fact that it, it, it is a very funny crime novel, even though there are serious consequences. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Well, 
One of my favorite things is that it's not as though um, Louis Vuitton is necessarily produced, uh, you know, in the home vineyard area of Louis Vuitton, (laughs) wherever that even is, right? One of the Uh things I found fascinating was that the the, um, factory where the actual authentic handbags are produced, in this book anyway, is right next to the other Mm -hmm. factory where the authentic one-to-one copies are produced. So when you went to your research trip, was was this part actually fairly true? Are you allowed to tell us? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, the first thing, I mean, the reason why that seems so outlandish to people is because the international brands, and not all of them manufacture in China, but many of them do, but they go to great lengths to hide that. It's not something they advertise. Um, but, you know, the factory that I toured was a state-of-the-art high-end, very reputable factory that manufactured a lot of designer brands and actually told me that I wasn't allowed to take pictures of them because the brands don't want, uh, don't want that to get out. But I mean, that, it, it, uh, that is one of the questions, you know, we talk about, um, people say like manufacturing in China as a blanket statement for poor quality, but there are state of the art factories in China. There are, uh, sweatshops in Italy, you know, like it's, um, kind of the shorthand really doesn't, uh, doesn't capture the complexities of what's going on. They told you you couldn't take pictures, but did they tell you you couldn't write a novel about it? <laughs> They're in the acknowledgments. Thanks in the acknowledgments. I don't know that they will be too happy with the book. But listen, as you know, you know, if if as a novelist you set out to, to please anyone, it's hard to it's hard to do good work, right? No, that's <laughs> to please very, everyone, rather. It's mm-hmm. very true. Well, let's talk about let's talk about the model minority myth. Um, on the surface, if you just hear this this phrase, it could sound to people like a good thing. Like who one wouldn't want to be part of like the group that's held up as um as the model. But it's incredibly damaging, isn't it? So so uh, I mean, I'm sure there there might be folks who don't know. So um what in your words is the model minority myth and, and why is it such a problem? Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah. So, I mean, just kind of a basic overview, and I'm not an expert, but this is my uh, my understanding of it. The model minority myth is this idea that a particular group, uh, often East Asians, Asian Americans, are uh, polite, submissive, law-abiding, and then also that they have hi- achieved high levels of success um, due to their own uh, hard work. And so, yes, on the surface, it seems... Those are all positive. What's wrong with that? And I think that's one of the really insidious things about the myth is that um, for the generations maybe a little bit older than me, maybe one or two generations above, they would probably turn to, to us, my generation and below, and say, you know, you're being ungrateful. This is like even our parents and grandparents believe that they were lucky to um, be described in this way. But I think one of the big problems with the model minority myth is, firstly, it clearly pits people of color against each other. It's a way for people to say, well, look, they got by on their hard work, so clearly you can't get by because you're lazy. So that's the first problem. The second thing is that it flattens differences um, uh, between individuals. And so now all East Asians are seen as high achieving, good at math, you know, and we know that's not true. And we know that there are uh, large groups of people left behind because they're told like, well, you're a model minority, like, you know, this issue doesn't plague your community. And so I think those are kind of, you know, very quickly, um, a couple of the a couple of the problems with the myth. Um, and then also this this idea that you, you should be grateful for this, you know, and, and um, 
And then the last thing I'll say uh, is that it's a myth that very clearly frames East Asians as outsiders, right? You're the model minority, therefore you're not actually American. You're a model minority within America. And so then East Asians are in this position of constantly trying to prove like, no, no, we are American enough, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that anytime we take any one group of people and decide that they're all any kind of certain kind of way, we're already we're already in, in dangerous and troublesome waters, right? Anytime we just assume that all, first off, even sometimes the word Asian, I think, in America is applied as this like blanket, yeah, right? I mean, I understand that like my mother's Italian. And so in general, that means from Italy, although she's never been there. Right. So we've right. got so we've got some of these monikers that are just like one offs. But even the term Asian, like that's that is it's sweeping a huge, a yeah. huge number of. <laughs> are you kidding me? Like that that word doesn't even it doesn't even encapsulate it. It um, erases difference even by by being this one label that we that we toss it at groups of people. And um, yeah, historically in America, I don't think we're great at that. Like I would not give us a gold star for <laughs> how we portray groups of people as better than or less than. And so what was so much fun in this book is to watch Winnie and Ava sort of shrug off the um, suppositions and and stereotypes and assumptions. And, and they try on different personas when they're going to return a bag. So, right, I'm 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 returning a bag because I'm I'm a board board housewife and I'm at, or I'm returning a bag because it's just not my color. Or I'm I'm so sorry to be that the, they try on all number of personalities in their, um, you know, in their little plays to, to get these bags uh, back and to to get the, the money for them. But I, I like that you trash um, and break with these stereotypes that are incredibly harmful and that we do not need. And, and, and they never served us. And it is certainly time for them to go out the door. Yeah. And I and I think I, I'm glad you mentioned that part, because I think that is also one of the stereotypes of East Asian women in particular, you know, they're um, strangely invisible, um, you know, as an East Asian, as an Asian American writer, I have with my Asian American writer friends, we have this joke that we've all been mistaken for each other multiple times. Um, Seriously? And it's, it's, oh yes, like routinely, routinely, oh, even God. by people you, you know. And it's, it's on the one hand, very funny. On the other hand, it makes you feel like, well, you know, I worked so hard to distinguish myself and the fact that it just, I just get flattened is, you know, obviously harmful in many ways. Um, but I think that's really what Ava and Winnie are doing. They're playing with the kind of invisibility of Asian women and using that to their advantage. Um, and that was one of the real delights of writing this book was watching this, these women be ingenious, you know, again, given the constraints that were placed on them, using those constraints uh, as a weapon against um, the people who are uh, holding them, uh, holding it over them. A craft note: I don't know that I've ever read a book that plays with point of view in quite the same way that this one does. By point of view, I mean to, to people who are listening who aren't writerly folks that you can be first person and telling the story about myself, or be second person and talking to a you, or be third person and, and we're telling the story from the fly on the wall. Um, so I, I love the way you move pretty seamlessly from this second person talking to the detective to then we get some other narrations later in the book that that shift and and offer a little bit of a distance. And in doing so, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to say this well, but so the book seems to be about 
what is true, what is real and what is fake, right, in, in the bags. But also with the n- narration that you use, as a reader, I've got multiple truths and multiple realities from the point of views that you've you've chosen. And there's this gorgeous way that the that the text and the craft echo the plot with the bags. I assume you did this on purpose, but I'm just going to say it's masterful and really, really was an example of point of view serving the narrative. Not just like because you felt like doing second person that day, but it was really great. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. That's really, that's really lovely to hear. Um, and yes, I put a lot of work, a lot of thought and work into that. So I'm glad that it resonated. Um, I have always thought of point of view as a tool for suspense. Always. You know, in when I wrote my um last novel, so the one prior to Counterfeit, Bury What We Cannot Take, it rotates through five different points of view. And um the reason I wanted a book with this complicated structure was because each member of the family was keeping secrets from each other. And that was the way to bring that out because, you know, each of the characters would say something and another character, you know, and they would not, they were completely oblivious to what the other person was thinking. And that's fun to write as a fiction writer. It's a really great problem to have to work your way through. Um, And so it was, you know, a similar approach with this. Um, I will say that Initially, I tried to write the entire book as a confessional, and um, so much would have been lost, as you can tell, because it. I liked the elegance of having a novel be, you know, just a tight police confessional, but there was no way to tease out the the things that Ava was being unreliable about, which obviously in any police confessional, you know, if, if the narrator has one goal, which is to set herself free or to lessen her sentence, you know, she's going to... to tell her story in a way that serves that goal. And there was no way to tease out the nuances. So uh, that's when I realized, okay, there's going to have to be a couple of other different points of view. Otherwise, um, we will never know what's true, you know? And I don't know that you ever, I don't know that it's ever really true, but you have a sense of it at least um, at the end of the book. (laughs) There's a couple of times when Ava says something like, no more secrets, (laughs) no more lies. (laughs) Some of my favorite was like, oh, here comes a lie. Here comes a secret. I'm just like, there was, because of that intertextuality, because of that play between the narrations, I just thought it was delightful to consider what was real and what was fake, just like with the bags. And also, like, whether there was any harm in that. Um, I definitely found myself uh, toying around with, well, I mean, does she need to tell the truth right now? I, mean, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, why? Um there were there are also some other just like delightful moments in the book because there are lots of things I could talk about, but I don't want to spoil it because I know lots of people are going to read this. But there are just these relatable moments while amid, you know, counterfeit handbag ring, you're also having to get your kid in a preschool. So it's <laughs> like it just was it was so funny because I feel like as a person with a job and work life balances is real that also amid your your handbag counterfeit global ring you're also going to have to be stressed about which preschool your kids going to go to and i have filled out those applications i remember so ava has to try to get her son henry into school and she's there there's letters of reference and and i remember they were asking about my daughter's leadership skills and potential How to old lead was she? she was like two and a half maybe <laughs> three and i'm looking at this kid like smacking a stick against a pot and like I don't know what, you know, letters of reference, what would they even say? So I absolutely cracked up 
at your depiction of Ava trying to get her son Henry into school because you can you can be killing it at your counterfeit handbag job, but that doesn't mean that your kid's gonna you know give a good interview at the age of two. <laughs> yes, because he can barely talk. It's true, and and I also think you know this idea, especially where I, where I live in San Francisco, that you know. It's it's a status symbol just like a handbag the, where where your kid goes to school um, and um, and I think the people who um, run those schools know that and are well aware of that as well and there's a you know it's a culture that kind of feeds each other um, and so I was thinking you know I was thinking about that as as nursery nursery school as status symbol just the way a designer handbag might be. Yeah, it made me think about all the things we do for status and most of us would not have assumed that where our kid went to preschool was one of them, but it totally was. It totally was. I remember ranking them in order. Like, I really wanted my kid to get in here, but I would have been happy with here. And this, the bottom one was just, it was like, you know, the lowest tier one, you know. And (laughs) But you do get to a point where you realize, oh my gosh, she's just got to go somewhere. Um, Yeah, I I also, so like I said, I'm not a handbag person, but I, I also got to thinking about guilty pleasures and small happinesses. Like we all like to consider ourselves reasonable and principled, but we all have our things, don't we? Like whether it's your shot glass collection or your beer mugs of the world or the magnets, like everyone's got their thing. Like I am a card-carrying library member, but man, I buy a lot of books. Like I buy books like other women might buy shoes. Like I have them on my shelves. I like to like hold them and and have even when I've read it from the library I'll often still buy it. I I know in some ways it's like could be seen as wasteful. It's probably not good for the trees. Um but at the same time like it's that's my thing. That's my my happiness. And we have to probably make peace with <laughs> with whatever it is yeah. for us. Yeah, and you're right. I love how you said that. And I think we're, we can be very judgmental about what other people choose to spend money on, you know, and we think like, oh, that's financially irresponsible. But we all have the thing we're willing to kind of stretch, you know, stretch ourselves a little bit for. I, I think your book thing is a real, um, you know, like if we were all really trying, we would all read ebooks. But I, like you, buy everything in hardcover. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um. I've heard some news about counterfeit, and I don't know if we're allowed to share it. So you can just, like, give me hand gestures if we're like, we're not talking about that yet. Because <laughs> um, I know that it, this book is also not just going to be a book, but I feel like I saw that it's going to make its way to some screens somewhere. Is there news you can share with us about where this book is going? Uh, Well, I will say the book has been optioned. So it has been optioned for TV. Um, As you likely know, um, just because a book has been optioned, there is no guarantees. (laughs) It's extremely difficult for a a TV show to actually make it um, to a streaming service or on air. What we used to say on air, but, you know, to a streaming service, more likely. Um, So... um, there's, I mean, the only reason I can't share much about it is because we're in the very early stages. Um, I'm not super involved in the project. I will say, um, you know, I have um, an executive producer credit, so I am in touch with the team, um, and they're lovely, and they they keep me updated. Um, but I was never interested in adapt- doing the adaptation myself. Um, Why not? It's not... 
it's not my firstly because it's not my skill set, but I think you know I, I would have to learn a whole genre of writing. I think, um, but more like learning a short story, for instance, or like learning <laughs> say counterfeit maybe, handbags. Maybe learning to write a poem, or you know something a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> I wish I've never. Not, I have not done that since maybe <laughs> elementary school. But yes, I, I get your point. But I think more importantly, um, I think I would be too invested. In that, and what I've learned just from the very short time that I've been exposed to this is that TV is incredibly collaborative. Um, you know, it's a writer's room, for instance, and you have to be very, very unattached because the things that you spent your whole day writing can be cut immediately in a second. And I think that would be extremely difficult if it were my book. I'm very interested in maybe being in a writer's room for somebody else's book. <laughs> Because then it would be freeing in a different way. But for my own book, it would feel like I was writing the book over again. And I, 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 I put my whole soul into this book and I don't want to go through it again and then have to like explain to the 10 people or 50 people asking why it has to be a particular way. So I think it's, I, I think I have a healthy involvement in the project, but if, but just to be clear, it hasn't, <laughs> we have no idea what's going to happen with it. All right. Well, I'm sending good vibes out there because I am the least fashionable person I know, but I can also never not watch, say, The Devil Wears Prada. If I'm if I'm oh, channel really? scrolling <laughs> and if I see The Devil Wears Prada, I'm going to stop and watch it. Again, I am not fashionable. I don't even like I am. I am. What's her face at the beginning? I'm Andy at the beginning of that story, like <laughs> spilling soup in my it's sweater. It's a good movie. But yeah, I, I love, I love movies about like fashion, and so I don't know. I feel, I feel very strongly that that we will hear more, um, more from this in the in the time to come. I'm, I'm excited, I'm excited to see what legs it has. But in the meantime, folks can absolutely um, buy it and or check it out from the library. Both are. Um, both are wonderful. Um, we always ask a few wrap-up questions here at the end. Just, you know, you pick one and fill in the blanks. So are you a coffee or tea person? Both. Mountains or beach? Neither. <laughs> I'm a city person. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to add that. Um, early, bird or, early bird or night owl? Very much an early bird. At about 7 p.m., I kind of stop. <laughs> stop working. <laughs> Good, good to My know. brain stops working. Yeah, you power down. Um, loud or quiet? Quiet. Yoga or karaoke book club? Oh, that's a very tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> I do the yoga daily so that I have the few bursts of you know few bursts of energy to do the karaoke book club. Kind of like how publishing is a blip in the writing life. Karaoke book club is a is a blip in the yoga life. But you need both. <laughs> you really do. <laughs> What's your what's your favorite yoga pose? Oh gosh, I like standing on my head a lot. I think it's just a good way to just kind of shift perspective, you know, to realize that things are not static. That's fantastic. And then what's your go-to karaoke song? I've never attended karaoke book club, but I I'm so uh, do you guys all sing about the book? Are there like is there a catalog no. or it's or do not you that have, complicated? You know? What happened was a group of my friends who are all um, Asian American women writers, just by uh, not by chance. Those are the only people I'm friends with. I don't know why I said that, but you know, um, we started it because we wanted to read the Ferrance books. Oh and yeah, yeah. They, 
So we started it when the first Ferrante book came out. We decided we'd read them in, in order. And the Ferrante books are so melodramatic and so full that we were like, this is, like, they're like 80s, like 80s. If there was a soundtrack to them, it would be 80s anthem ballad, you know, anthem, <laughs> like arena rock or something, plus ballads. Mm-hmm. And so we uh, we also really love karaoke, like I'm not going to pretend that that wasn't something we already did, but we would go out to dinner, talk about the books, and then go sing about heartbreak and love. Okay, are you, let's see, cake or pie? Oh, good question. Probably pie. And then this is a fill in the blank. If I wasn't working as a writer, I would be a? Oh, gosh. You know, I say this all the time, like I could do something else, but I don't really know what that would, <laughs> what that something else would be. I mean, like I once I used to say like, oh, I'd be a yoga instructor. But then it was like, that's completely unrealistic. It's very, very, very difficult to make a living as a yoga instructor. Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I would find a business to like a small business. I don't mean like I would run a corporation, but maybe like a small you know, I'd be a small time entrepreneur because I think like that's kind of what writing a book is. You're like a kind of. CEO of your of your own little business um and so you know like if I were a baker or something I could say like oh I'd run a bakery or a little boutique or something like that um I like the idea I think I got um I have gotten really attached to being my own boss you know uh and and that that's the part that would be hard to give up yeah the hours that you're working and then the hours that you're not and then those in between hours yeah I could see that Mm-hmm. Um, if you could time travel, would you rather go back in time or forward? Oh, probably back. Uh, I have nostalgia for the 90s like everybody else. <laughs> you know, they're pretty good years. Um, I've never been that, even in terms of my reading, I don't generally gravitate toward like, you know, things set in the future all that much. Obviously, there are exceptions. But yeah, it's no, I'm, not, I'm not that curious of a person. I think that's what it is. I, it's not like I need to know. <laughs> What, 10 years? You know, like, I'm just not that curious. And so I'm like, oh, something that I've already experienced would be just fine. I don't know. I, looking at all the research you surely did for this, I think you are a curious person, but maybe not future curious. In a specific gotcha. way, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, what's something quirky that folks don't know about you? Likes, loves, pet oh, peeves? Uh, something quirky. I don't know how quirky... I'm a very normal person. I mean, aside from the fact that I that I've built my life around two hours of yoga every morning, it's you know six o'clock in the morning. That's pretty. I guess that your face tells me that's. Uh, yeah, two I live hours? in San Francisco, so that feels pretty normal. <laughs> and I've done this for 15 years, so um, it's such a part of my life. But I do realize now that, as I said it out loud, that it is. Um, I I am a true creature of routine. I am not easily bored. I think that serves me as a writer as well. That's one of the reasons I start a project and I don't get distracted. Um, Like, I don't write stories on the side. I don't, like, you know, write essays. I just, you know, I start a novel. That's the only thing I work on for five years, and that's completely satisfying to me. And same way with my my yoga. You know, I started doing it in, oh, around 2007 and very quickly became a daily yogi, and I never stopped. That's fantastic. (laughs) I don't know two hours worth of yoga poses. Can I just like hang out in child's well, you pose? You repeat a lot. You repeat a lot. That's why it's boring. But I mean, it's not, I mean, to me, it's not boring. But to the outside world, it may, it probably looks pretty boring. Um, what's a favorite book or a favorite movie or both? Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm reading a lot of new books right now um, and a lot of books by friends that are um, 
have just come out or are about to come up. One that comes to mind right away is um, Forbidden City by a dear Vanessa friend, Hua. Vanessa Hua. Have you read this? I have it on my nightstand. It's it's like oh. the second one. So I've got one b- above it and then it's next after oh, that. Oh, you got to tell me what you think. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, um, it's told from the point of view of Chairman Mao's mistress, who's this teenage girl from the village who comes to the capital to serve in his quote-unquote dancing troupe. Um, but um, it's, I mean, it's unexpected. It's moving. It's really unique. Um, and it feels so current and contemporary. So um, I would highly recommend it. I'm excited. Yay. Um, and what's your favorite ice cream? Oh, mint chocolate chip. Yeah, good for this time of year. <laughs> All right, and last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? Oh, I mean, I'm really ha- content to just be home drinking coffee on a Saturday morning, watching Grand Slam tennis. You know that I'm a tennis fan. I do. Oh, I forgot to ask tennis you. tennis fan, yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm <laughs> I was a big time tennis player growing up, and then you I know were? we. But I, I did not know that. I, I you, was. Did you did the whole junior circuit. So I mean, I grew up with a dad who was a he was a basketball player, but in his like local city park where he played, you couldn't just get in a game. You had to like wait because you got to get like. And so he picked up a racket and started hitting against it. Like some guy was playing. He's like, so he le- taught himself tennis against a backboard in a city park. Wow. And then when he was a public school teacher, they he was trying to be a basketball coach. And he, it's like a hierarchy there. But the tennis coach job always seemed to be open. So he started coaching oh, your tennis. Dad was a tennis coach. So uh-huh. he started coaching tennis. And I mean, like now I just I'll get together with my brothers and my sister and we'll play for like you know, family, family honor. Uh, some of those, some of those games are more crushing. Right. <laughs> Thank you, Kirsten Chen, for coming on the show today. You've talked about a novel as, quote, a problem you create for yourself. And I've been thinking about that. Like, we do make a lot of our own problems. And we forget that since we're the one who's creating the puzzles, the solutions are probably inside of us, too. Mm-hmm. And I love thinking about writing and living Kind of, kind of like that way. So, folks, for people who are listening, this has been Kirsten Chen. She's the author of several novels. Her most recent, Counterfeit, which you're going to see on a bookshelf and gravitate toward just because that amazing cover is completely worth it. It's a terrific summer read. It's a terrific anytime read. And you can find it wherever books are borrowed or sold. Uh, to everyone listening, we are wishing you love and light wherever this day takes you. Be good to yourself. Be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube. And audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greeny. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the Guilty Greeny. There's your first challenge of the week. Avoid (laughs) elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. 
You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. <laughs> 